You're listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. What do Goofy, Blue, Brer Bear, Tigger, Foul Fellow, Captain Hook, and the Genie all have in common? Today's guest has portrayed all of them. An educator and Allstate artist mentor at the University of Massachusetts, as well as a 3D instructor for the Massachusetts College of Art and Design, he has been a sculptor for National Fiber Technology, as well as a puppeteer for Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Most recently, he has been a writer, director, and producer at the Bablu Theater in Fort Collins, Colorado. It is my honor to introduce today's guest, Brett Sylvia. Welcome to the show, Brett. Thanks, Marshall. I'm so happy to be here. We're on the airwaves here. Where am I talking? Am I talking to someone in Fort Collins, Colorado? That's correct. Fort Collins, Colorado. Just to talk about the weather for a little bit, how is the weather there? Are you in a deep freeze? We're just coming out of our Arctic freeze right now. So today is a beautiful sunny day. I noticed that you worked for the National Fiber Technology. What did you do there? I was the one that made sure the machines continued to run. I was also the one to uh, work with product, which was hair and sometimes real, sometimes fake hair products. I also would work on the sculptures that they would have that needed to have hair installed onto them to show a lot of the consumers that we worked with, which was in Hollywood, uh, Disney World, commercials, anybody interested in commercials using these kind of things, this kind of product, I would show them how to use it ultimately if they were to use it in any kind of a form of sculpture or um, animation or something. So you would work with the clients, showing the clients how to use wigs or furs, whatever was made. Yeah, in in a way, yes. I, I was part of like understanding how to use this product professionally. Sometimes they video record me doing it or to send to some of their clients or, yeah, it was very interesting. Where is National Fiber Technology located? They're located in Lawrence, Massachusetts. That's where you went to school as well, right? Yes, I went to school. I went to started going to school at a, a uh, community college called Bristol Community College. It's a nice little small associate's degree kind of college. Got my associates there. I also went to, uh, at that point, I uh, went for an interview for Disney as well. Eventually, I went to Disney from there and I took a semester off and went there and then got my uh, undergrad from uh, Massachusetts College of Art and Design, did three years there, and then I did another three years at University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. So I have over nine years schooling. I'm just curious, how did the interview at Disney go? What kinds of questions did they ask you? It just seems that they might be creative in their interview process. That's a good question. There were three interviews I had to go for and then one audition. Their questions were, I believe, if I remember, they were very general. How would you feel if you were to be in this kind of situation with, you know, with, with Disney? And, and, and so they're, they're really looking for your response to be positive. So ultimately, every question they asked me, you needed to really have a really positive response. It wasn't really about what you were saying. It was how you were saying it. Before that, you worked at Hollywood Studios. What did you do there? So once I got the uh, opportunity to be a puppeteer, I nailed, the in- I nailed the audition, nailed the interviews. I went out to Disney the following semester, and then I started doing character performances around the parks, and eventually my home became Hollywood Studios in- at Disney World. And I did two shows there, Voids of the Little Mermaid, where I played multiple puppets, including one part of a giant Ursula puppet, and then Sweetums in Muppet Vision 3D. I haven't been to 
Disney World or Disneyland in many, many years. Uh, actually, I got kicked out of Disneyland around 1967, <laughs> but that's, that's a different story. When, when you were portraying these characters, did you use voices or you were just silent? Yeah, you just go through the motions. They teach you how to do it, how to perform them, when to perform them. The lip sync is very, very important. The movements at certain times, sometimes you're not even the lip, sometimes you're the arm. Um, in the case of Ursula. But it's really important to just nail it. And trust me, they made sure, they made sure that you were sleeping with this track going through your head, knowing that you're going to be getting this uh, opportunity. So, but you have to nail it in the end, right? So they, they say this is your opportunity. If you don't get this right by the end of the night, you don't get the, sh- you don't get the role. So that's a big thing. And so it's all night long, all night long. I think it starts at like, at like uh, 12 at night, and it goes all the way through to like uh, 7 in the morning. And what preparation was there involved? So you get up, you go to work. What was the preparation that was involved there? Well, there's a, there's a big spy. Uh, all the Disney World theme parks have huge backlot areas that are not to be seen by anybody who doesn't work, who don't work there. So there's there's bikes. You have to ride on bikes all through the area. You go into your, your costume. You know, you have your set of grays underneath. You walk through whatever dressing areas, whatever back alleys you have to get to to get to your, to your spot where you perform. Sometimes it's above ground, sometimes it's underground. But, yeah, they have bikes. That, that's a big way of mode of transportation for all of their employees, except for, like, Imagineers. They get their own little golf cart. Currently, you're at, now, correct me if I'm mispronouncing this, the Bas Bleu Theater in Fort Collins. Is that correct? That's right, the Bob Blue Theater. And w- what kind of venue is the, is that theater? It's a theater that's a, a nonprofit community theater. Their theater uh, mainly did a lot of uh, very artsy, very uh, almost gritty type of performances where you don't you know you don't want to bring your kids there. But then when they started to get to know me and who I am, they gave me an opportunity to bring some of what I do to life there. And uh, we had a lot of fun. We did great. So now I've been kind of a staple there. While you were working there, or you're still working there, I don't know, with with this pandemic, I don't know how theaters are dealing with all of this, but you wrote an original play called Of Monsters and Mountains. I saw this play, and the kids in the audience, are, are they're, they're sitting on blankets, they're sitting on beanbags. The actors at one point blow bubbles into the audience I guess he can't do that during a pandemic anymore. But uh, <laughs> the, the show included some great lighting, shadow puppets, sock puppets, and, and much, much more. And you have three, st- you have uh, several stories in the play. One is Magna the Laundry Monster, which, which had, for me, shades of Maurice Sendak in it. And the, <laughs> the Golden Fish, which was a Russian folktale. And uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Maunumoko, which is based on a local Arapaho legend. Can you tell us what went into putting this show together? Yeah, that was a great description. Thank you. The whole idea was to shed light and uh, on some of these things. There may be falsities, but also having fun with folktale at the same time. The original was, my my original was Magda the Laundry Monster. I wrote it and directed it and did that whole thing. And, and each one of these stories... We had to audition people, puppeteers. These people have never done puppetry before. We brought them in. They did puppetry. They did it great. So we, we had about nine puppeteers and everybody that was involved. Magda the Laundry Monster kind of came from my own experience of what a laundry monster would have. How would a laundry monster exist? So that was a basic idea, of the idea of a kid procrastinating, not listening to his parents. It's a fun little thing. And I'm gonna, we're going to be writing more of those. We've got second and a third one coming 
And the second one is a Russian folktale. My wife was the one that picked it out. She's from Moscow originally. She moved to Colorado and then moved to Boston, we met in the streets of Boston, and then you know, it was all history from there. But she was the one that came up with this, the Of Monsters and Mountains title and then the idea of bringing in this Russian folktale about greed and what happens when you, you get too greedy. And it, this is an old couple. These aren't young kids. So it doesn't matter. It's ageless. And so, you know, the story continues, it continues, and it basically ends the same way it began, or vice versa. And then the third one is the Arapaho legend, because we felt it was a need to cast light on this mountain that was ultimately in our backyard called Horse Tooth Mountain. And the legend has nothing to do with horse tooth or horse's teeth. And the legend was about a giant, and it was just such, such an amazing tale, but no one knew about it. So we decided to write a story, incorporate the story of a fur trapper who were the ones to originally call it, eventually, Horse Tooth Mountain, and we made fun of him and kind of gave him the spotlight at the same time. So he, his voice would change from this backyard kind of, here we are in the Horse Tooth Mountain, you know, and then his voice changed to the, the Native American who understood the story right on stage. It was It was beautiful. And we shed light on that and the idea that this is the story, not the horse tooth mountain. It's, there's no story in that. So education and uh, fantasy, folklore, and all mixed in together. You mentioned that you auditioned for puppeteers and, and I guess, voices and, and live actors. Are all of the people who auditioned from the Fort Collins area, where do they all come from? Yes, they are. They're all from Fort Collins, ultimately the Front Range is what we call it here. So anywhere from uh, Windsor, Boulder, um, you know, even if you want to come from Denver, our stage manager had to drive from Denver. She was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And she put everything into it. She she was the glue that just brought everything together. It was great. So, yeah, people from all over, uh, kind of northern Colorado, who wanted to do this. And, uh, yeah, that was it. Just for the listeners who, who can't visualize what this show looks like, I, I think your opening theme sort of says it all for the feeling that you get in the show. And I, I'd like to play that for our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about what went into putting that together? Well, ultimately, I did the music as well. And I wasn't in the position to be able to hire a, a band or even train a band or find music and have them give me the music that would fit the, fit the show because we had, we had over, uh, over 40 puppets for this show and over six different types of puppetry in general and nine people and, you know, a lot of moving parts. So I didn't have time to write any music or reach out to someone who could help me out with this. So I scoured the internet looking for stock music, something that would work, and, a, and not only just like a kind, but all different types that would work for the feeling that we have for the show. So I was looking for a vibe, I was looking for a feeling. So I, I kind of got a lot of foot, a lot of um, different types of music, listened to it, and placed it in there, like the Russian folklore had Russian music, and it was a live band in Russia that was playing it, but this music is not copywritten because it's so old, and uh, it's been around forever, it's beautiful, and uh, we put it in there, I think it really does fit the vibe, it fits the, the funness of it, but also the idea that 
this is not just for kids. This is also for adults, and it's it's like a circusy kind of vibe as well. I'd like everybody to hear that vibe in the intro to your play. mentioned all of the people involved in this and the number of puppets that you used. Uh, one thing that impressed me, it was a really a multimedia show. You have, uh, you work with lighting, you work with the sound, you have marionettes, you have sock puppets, you have live actors, and you have shadow theater. To talk about the shadow theater, who put that together? That was me. I directed the shadow uh, theater and how it was going to be made. My wife was the one that actually made the cutouts. So she was the one that made all the cutouts. And I was the one that kind of said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> so ultimately in the end, uh, as things were getting done, we were like, okay, we got to do these shadow puppets now. So it's an illusion because they look like they're being performed live on stage, but they're not. They're pre-recorded, uh, which is what I learned from Walt Disney. I learned pre-record everything you possibly can and then fill in the gaps with live stuff, live performance. The transition from when the old man is talking to the fish and then he leaves, well, even went before he talks to the fish, you see him as a shadow puppet going down to the water and then the live actor talks to the fish and then moves and it, this, it's a seamless transition into the uh, shadow play. Very, very well done, very well done. You're also... I don't know if you are still an educator, but you used to cover plaster molding, making techniques, as well as casting and finishing. What, what exactly is involved in teaching those skills? So when I was at Massachusetts College of Art and Design in Boston, I used to teach a summer class there. And the summer class was supposed to be the basics of 3D fundamentals. I said, okay, well, this is the basics. So then I basically created a, uh, my own program with mold making and casting of their, of, from a live 3D model. Now, this is something that you would be getting into with a specific type of course, like sculpture, for instance, of course. So I kind of took my own, <laughs> I took my own version of 3D fundamentals and I said, no, this is my version. These kids are going to want to come into sculpture and want to do art more if I teach them this. And this was a professional class. This was something that you would do in a college setting, not in high school. And these kids are coming in from high school into college. So this was a real college class. This was not a fluff class. And so I brought them in, and, and this is what they did. They, they learned from a live model. They sculpted out of clay. They learned different, different techniques. And in the end, the molding and the casting and the finishing, and then they each had their own product of a finished casted mold. They, they could, now they know the basics of how to uh, uh, sculpt and create basically some of the first 
uh, type of sculpture they ever did, in, like in Rome and in Italy. When you're talking about 3D sculpture, this isn't necessarily uh, the 3D sculpture that I think about using a computer. This is actually... This is a- using your hands in clay in a, in a real-life model. Were they this is fine art? Uh, were they making uh, busts? Were they making uh, yes. puppet heads? W- what kinds of so things? Ultimately, ultimately, they'd be making a bust from a live model, and then once they have that bust created to the best of their ability, then they would change that bust to a creature, to a to a being, to they'd alter it in some way, whatever way they would want to. What terminology do, does a student need to be aware of when they're taking a class like this? Perspective is one uh, term that they'd have to understand. Proportion is another. How things fall into space, that's another way of understanding. And then one is uh, one thing that you, if you really want to impress your teacher, uh, get, rid of, get rid of the most common word parasite, like. <laughs> I like the way this looks. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like never start a critique with like. That is probably the best advice I could give any student that's getting into this or is even in it right now. Never say you like something. Say, this has meat or this has volume or I really enjoy this portion of the way this piece kind of came out. It's all about that presentation and when you're critiquing, you want people to benefit from your words, what you're speaking. I'd like to step back and go back to your play of Monsters and Mountains, and I'd like to play some of... Now, correct me. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Maunumoku? Maunumoku. Maunumoku. You touched upon it a little bit, but is there anything else that you want to add before I... I'm just going to play a little bit of it. It's the final story. Uh, It doesn't necessarily end on a good note. But uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't think it matters. Uh, it's more education and more of understanding of where, where the story behind every single place. Where, what, what, what value does that story have? And is it, is it important to you? Well, let's take a uh, listen to the Manumaku. Again? I done told you that story about a thousand times. Well, all right, but I don't want to hear about how you can't sleep, do you? Now be quiet and no interrupting. I needs to get off and get mine's beauty sleep. Yeah, well, don't kid yourself. You needs it more than I do. One more peep out of you, and there'll be no story. Well, all right then. That's better. The story begins long ago, before any of us folk were trapping around these parts. The Arapaho legend tells us that there was once a giant who presided over the area, calling it the Valley of Contaminant. Hey now, are you telling the story or am I? Now, like I was saying, 
They called it the Valley of Contentment. The giant protected the animals living there from all harm, and they could not be hunted. If anyone were to enter the valley with the intent of harming the animals, death would rain down upon them. In time, a great drought came upon the land outside of the valley, and all the animals that the local tribes once hunted moved on in search of water. The people of the tribes were without meat and began to starve. They decided to brave the giant to hunt the plentiful buffalo, deer, and antelope roaming the Valley of Contentment. The tribes gathered and planned their hunt. They would wait until the hunter's moon as they knew the giant was weakest when the moon was bright. Before embarking on their hunting journey, they chanted and called upon the magic of their ancestors to provide them with the tools they needed. A tomahawk was sent from the heavens and the tribes bestowed on it enchantments. A tomahawk was sent from the heavens, and the tribes bestowed on it enchantments until the time they had waited for was at hand. Chief Manomoku led his warriors to the valley in search of the giant and found him sleeping atop the mountain. The chief took the magic tomahawk and... Oh, good gravy. Are you gonna let me get through this story or not? Well, all right. I'll try not to make it so scary for you. Just as long as you stop your interruptions. Deal? <coughs> now, where was I? Oh, oh yeah. Chief Monomuku led his warriors to the valley in search of the giant and found him sleeping atop the mountain. The chief took the magic tomahawk and heaved it over the chest of the sleeping giant, sinking it deep into his heart. He again raised the tomahawk and sliced back into the giant's chest, killing the giant and turning him into stone. The giant is now one with the mountain and the slices of his chest reflect the formation of the rock. The red color comes from the giant's blood. There are no more buffalo in the valley and many fewer antelope. The valley of contentment is no more and the tribes have been banished to reservations and replaced with a new people who frequently disrespect the land. When the thunderheads come over the mountains and descend upon the rock, many think it could be the spirit of the slain giant rumbling his anger 
and striking the valley below with rods of lightning in retribution for the slaughter of his animals and the theft of of his valley. The end. Well, time to head off to bed. What's that you say? Well, I'll be a hot dog on a stick. You're right. It does look like a horse, too. Huh. That was a selection from Mount Moko from Of Monsters and Mountains, the show created by my guest, Brett Sylvia. Have you played this piece before a Native American audience ever? Never. What do you think the reaction might be? I think that they would be honored because basically I make a fool of the white man. In the beginning, you hear this gentleman talking in that twang, and that's the fur trapper. Now, the fur trapper has another little buddy fur trapper, and he's a little rat. He's a little rat, and he's called Squeaks, and all he does is squeak. Squeaks, squeaks, squeak, squeak. You know, he, all he does is squeak. And, uh, and on stage, that's what you see, a rat on top of a barrel. The rat has a kind of like a hat made out of cardboard. And then the character playing the, the fur trapper, human, is just a guy. Now, that gentleman there performing it is also the one who does both the voices of the Native American and the fur trapper. So... I was I had the fun time about kind of overlapping them so that way when he started to tell the story, his voice would change to more of a Native American. And it was very important for me to give honor to the Native American dialect. I did not want it to sound stereotypical or anything like that. So I, I made sure that my, my friend Rysum, who's an extremely talented man, Rysum Sandlin, made sure that we got as authentic sounding as we could to the Native American's voice. By the end, the rat is the one that says, that, that mountain looks like a horse's tooth. And, the, and the, uh, the human fur trapper repeats it, and the people laugh because the story has so much meaning, so much meat, that ultimately we're trying to say, this mountain should not be called Horse Tooth Mountain. This mountain should be called Monumoku Mountain. And ultimately I'm, try- I'm kind of using a pedestal, for that. I'm kind of getting up on my soapbox and saying, We've destroyed it enough. Let's give it the name which it should be called, Monumoku Mountain. That came through. That definitely came through. Because of the pandemic, is your theater doing anything theatrical? We have it in a while. That's why I do something called Puppet Zoom. And Puppet Zoom is something that I feel is a necessity as me as a puppeteer and viewing audience. I basically get behind a screen here. I have a green screen. I invested in all kinds of green screen and green screen lighting and suits and all these things and ultimately have been doing interviews with people on something called Puppet Zoom. You can go to PuppetZoom.com to view all the clips we've done. We post one episode per day. So this is definitely something that we really try to, trying to do, trying to communicate positive messages getting people to be comfortable with communicating through things like a screen because this might be the way it is for a while. So that's a little something that we're doing on the side that I'm doing on the side 
and also inviting my four-year-old son if he wants to come in and play while we're doing interviews. It's very organic. It's all improvised. Can you give an example of one of the messages that you're promoting? Basically, keep going. If you're creative, use this opportunity to be more creative. Don't stop. Don't let this stop you. I often say that there's a lot of doors out there, and those doors might seem to be closed right now or closing, but creatives are the ones that create the doors to walk through. That's my message to anybody, anybody in any kind of industry. Be creative. Make the door so that way you can walk through and others can walk through too and maybe even find success and happiness that way. Brett Sylvia, unfortunately, we are running out of time. I'm so happy that you were able to take the time to speak with me. I think I'd like to close out with the outro music from of Monsters and Mountains. And I want to thank you again, and I hope to hear from you again real soon. Thank you again, Marshall. It's been an honor. You've been listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. This program was written and produced by Marshall. Our theme music was played by Ululation. Mr. Radio is available wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes and Spotify. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. And don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Mr. Radio.